You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jim Mitzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet. I first met Douglas Quinn back in 1993 at the Tuning of the World Conference in Banff, Canada. Sound recordists, musicians, academics, and acoustic ecologists came to celebrate the soundscape. And Doug Quinn embodies all those disciplines. He's recorded in the Antarctic, Africa, and the Amazon, and he's worked in many different contexts, including doing sound design for museum installations and feature films, such as Jurassic Park 3 and Werner Herzog's documentary, Encounters at the End of the World. Doug is a kindred spirit and one of the best sound documentarians I know. Here's the first part of an extended conversation with Doug about exploring the world of sound, which features a number of his remarkable recordings. Was there a sound or sounds that sort of really awakened you to the world of sound, that there was something out there that was like, wow, you know, a wow moment? I think there there are many. That's a great question about how what sort of sonic impressions leave an indelible mark on your your sort of awareness or that are formative. And I think that for me, there there are a number of them. I think as a backdrop to to thinking about this, one of the things is the importance of learning language. So growing up in Algeria as a little kid where those neural networks of language are forming, speaking English at home, but my parents also spoke French to help me with my homework and everything as I started school. I think the the tuning into language was crucial as a survival mechanism because you need to adapt very quickly when you grew up the way I grew up. And yes, you have the privilege of moving a lot, but you also have the downside of moving a lot, which is you're the, you know, the new kid on the block, you're the punching bag, you're always the different one. So I think my listening skills were developed at a young age as a way of fitting in. And so I spoke English at home, French at home, French at school, and Arabic on the street with friends. So I I grew up in this world of having to listen very carefully. And then added to that, there are certain sounds. Uh, you and I have spoken in the past about you know growing up in Algeria dur- during the war. One of the sounds that I, I can remember, which is a sort of um, synesthetic moment in that I can feel the heat coming off the, the desert at night um, as the temperature cooled and the sunset of hearing women ululating in the in the valley to the south of us. We lived at the southern end of Algiers on sort of on the on the highlands before you head to the Atlas Mountains. And hearing that sort of modulated ululating women was both a source of beauty and terror because it often was accompanied by night attacks on the city. And we lived in a French neighborhood. So, you know, you'd go to bed one night and you'd wake up the next day and people had disappeared overnight and houses were abandoned overnight. 
So that to me is a sound that still, again, has this haunting beauty, but a sense of almost visceral terror involved. After North Africa, most of my experience was in northern cold places. So the vocabulary of ice and ice sounds, you know, the tinkling crystalline sounds of ice, but also the ice breakup in the harbors and waters around Stockholm, where I grew up, is something that I just remember, you know, as a kid going out, walking around in the woods or playing near the house and hearing those sounds. that sort of ice vocabulary, if you will, is ingrained in me and the many, many different ways that that sounds. So it definitely is something that when I got the opportunity to work in Antarctica and the three seasons I spent there, I spent a lot of time listening to glaciers reporting ice and ice movement. So there are many, many different sounds of ice from the expansion and contraction as the sun ducks behind the mountain, the temperature plummets and the expansion of ice into these booming, thunderous sounds as well as cracking um, sounds. So they're just infinite variety. I think one of the most powerful experiences I had of listening to ice and glacier movement in Antarctica was being in the dry valleys. And the dry valleys is a desert. Most of Antarctica is, in fact, a desert. And uh, this sort of windswept area, there are several glaciers and on a still night, which is pretty unusual, the wind is almost constant in Antarctica, I was out not far from our base and just sitting, listening, and the sun had ducked down, just skimming the horizon. But as it went behind a mountain, the temperature plummeted, and the ice that had been warming during the day under the sun began to expand as it refroze. So there's this wonderful percussive chorus of booms and thuds and cracking as this was happening around me in the sort of sea of sound when everything else was silent. There was no surface sound. It was all the mechanics of the ice within. partly what drives me doing the recording is that we're faced with such catastrophic loss of life and climate change. It's very hard for any of us to wrap our brains around it. It exists on a time scale that is unfathomable to most of us. So I think my emphasis and why I do this stuff is to give people a visceral connection to this, because if it's just academic and a litany of loss and everything, this helplessness that comes with that, and people feel incapacitated. So my hope, as idealistic as it sounds, is that maybe you can appeal to people through the senses, through an emotional identification with this to open up the possibility to think differently rather than just beating people up with the the data sets and the resource management issues. of other ice sounds that I, I find compelling. Uh, of course, there's the big dramatic 
ice calving where you can have a sheet of ice of the terminus of a glacier falling to the ocean that might be the size of a city block. And the explosion of this, or the, the kind of built-up tension of pinging before the, the actual break comes. So there's some really powerful moments. And when you're doing sound recording, it's all about anticipation, too. I spent hours, days, weeks waiting for stuff to happen so you have to be of a certain mindfulness and content with both anticipation but being present in the environment the other thing too is the sound of melt and that can have a different inventory whether you're hearing melt from a perspective of underwater where you have the cavitation of bubbles billions of bubbles popping Also, some this is a recording from an ice cave at Old Palmer Station on the Antarctic Peninsula, which is long since gone when I recorded it 20 years ago. But that just was this beautiful patter because it includes the reverberation of the ice, both on the floor, but everything around you is ice in this. So that has a very distinct quality. did some really cool stuff. I know you were there on behalf of just research and sound recording, but you also spent time with uh, Werner Herzog. Uh, can you want to talk a little bit about that? That must have been fun. It was a wonderful encounter. The first time I met the man was on a Sunday morning at an industrial freezer um, site in downtown LA early in the morning. There was no traffic. And deep in the bowels underneath the streets of Los Angeles, we gathered in sub-zero temperature because he wanted to get a feeling of how cold it would be and to get some pointers because he would be doing the location recording to get the dialogue. I said, don't worry about anything else. I have almost everything that you, you need. And we had a lot of exchanges. I sent him a lot of the audio that I had. So he knew going into his trip down there what he could count on that he didn't have to worry about. And I said, the premium for you is to make sure you get the dialogue recorded. That's going to be the most important and critical piece of your work. And then we can figure the rest out. And the documentary, Encounters at the End of the World, much to our surprise, started off as a very small project for the Discovery Channel, but ended up getting a theatrical release at the Toronto Film Festival and was nominated for Best um, Documentary Feature at the Academy Awards that year. And I think the documentary 
is unique because as Herzog says in the film, it's not going to be another movie about fluffy penguins. And his interest is more in the human condition and the people who seek this out as a way of life. And I think that's what sets it apart from a lot of other documentaries where the focus is on wildlife. So uh, I want to circle back to something you said before, an important question. You intimated, we were talking about how not just talking about, you know, hey, glaciers are melting. Oh, that's nice. On to the next uh, news report. Hearing the sound of it could possibly affect people in another way. I think you use the word visceral. What is it about sound that can motivate us? How does it that sounds touch us? I think for me, sound affects us on so many different levels, but we're accustomed to just having it as a kind of early warning radar. We we listen for what's a threat And once we identify whether a sound is, you know, friend or foe, or what it is, where the source is coming from, we tend to then dial it back and let vision take over as we navigate our way. Because let's face it, you can't walk around actively listening all the time. I think it's just exhausting to to put yourself in a vulnerable position to allow all of that information in without filtering it. And we filter it unconsciously. And so I think part of the appeal for me, and I think, you know, what I invite people to do is to let your guard down, allow the sounds in, and it it has a transformative effect on your entire physical being. It's not just your ears, but your whole body is a receptor to sound. Sound waves are bouncing off your skin. And yes, there's a focus on the ear, but when you are fully alive in the act of listening, it's a complete bodily experience that is allowing this to come in. What happens is that sound being the first sense to come alive in your mother's womb and the last light switch when you die fading out, it brackets our lives. In that way, it is almost foundational to the other senses. And what I find with active listening is that it animates my other senses. I find sometimes that colors even appear brighter when I have sound coming in. And this is not something esoteric. This is something you do in your everyday life, really. And I think that's important that people understand that this is not some rarefied thing where you have to go to Antarctica to really listen. You don't. You can do it in your own backyard. But it's more the the attitude towards listening that it's something of value to a deeper sense of holistic being. And we talk about connecting or reconnecting to nature. I think sound is one of the primary ways in which that can happen. Because so much, particularly when you're in a forest environment, a tropical environment, you, you can't see a lot in terms of vocalizing creatures, but you can hear an awful lot. So I, I think we undervalue that to our detriment as a way to, quote unquote, reconnect with the world around us.
hear more sounds and conversation with Douglas Quinn in our next program. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet.